So how does it happen that you end up 17 years old writing code that ends up on uh, nuclear submarines? I find this project called MK Linux that was out of Apple. I heard all these stories about Steve Jobs personally approving this little feature in this one location. I think the first version we built, the iPhone didn't even yet have GPS. You know, Apple's telling you to do something, you do it. So you get this mishmash of ads in the app that are junky, or they're selling your data. These are the top three app developers in the world. Hey there, and welcome to Coffee and Coding, the app developer podcast. I'm your host, Rob J, and in this episode, I chat with Dan Burkar, serial founder of four different app-related companies, including founding one of the first app development studios ever. You're going to hear about his experience working at Apple when the iPhone was released, what app development looked like in 2007, how he founded and launched one of the first app development studios ever, how he landed the MBA as an app client, the early days of push notifications, and much, much more. Now on to the show. So you started four companies and you started your first company when you were 17, where you were writing code for nuclear submarines, if, if I got my research right. So how does that happen? How did that come about? To answer that question, it just has to do with sort of how I even got into computers to begin with, which was in middle school, you know, we had some of the old kind of early Macintosh computers um, and they started to get connected in the school to uh, networking. So we hadn't, you know, I think it was like at the time, like 56K, it was like an ISDN line, I think, into the school for the very basic, you know, whatever email But so what I, during that period, I was just already starting to like, be like, this is really cool stuff. I want to learn more about this. And, um, they, I somehow found out that, um, as a student, I could request access to a dial up system where I could log in from home. That was a Unix system. And I didn't know what, I didn't know what Unix was, but that sounded cool. So, um, so I, I went ahead and, and signed up. And next thing you know, and, and so what was funny is because it was a Unix system, but it had this kind of text-based menuing system. Um, so you could log into your Pine email and some other stuff. Um, so it was very rudimentary. But if you asked the system administrator, he, he would give you, grant you access to a bash shell, a bash shell or a corn shell. I think it was at the time you're asking about the nuclear submarine, but it all starts with like me tinkering with Unix. And um, learning how to shell script and and doing some of those things when I was pretty when I was in middle school. So okay, for people that not in the US, how old are you when you're doing this in middle school? Oh man, I mean, um, so this is like I don't know, maybe twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old, something like that. Yeah, so pr- pretty young. Um, and so by the time I got to high school, um, and so sort of in the kind of sixteen to eighteen age bracket. I mean, I was, I had Linux at home. I, that I had installed with like 200 floppy disks, um, because that's how you did it back then. And, um, it was nerve wracking because I had partitioned that we had a little 500 meg hard drive on our, uh, home computer that I had to repartition and, uh, it was super scary. And then that's I risky business. The, 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 my family didn't know what I was doing. And the fact that I had like squeezed windows into like a smaller <laughs> of. <laughs> of the of the space but in any event what what all that led to was then next thing you know I was like starting to be do some freelance system administration work uh for for Linux and how did I get hooked up with that I don't really remember other than there there was people that were starting to build some of the kind of the first generation of web design businesses but the, the problem in those years so this is sort of in the you know late 90s was you could not just design the website you had to host it somewhere and a lot of the hosting in those days was done uh, by like local ISPs instead of, you know, Squarespace didn't exist and these kind of things didn't exist. So I, uh, there was a web designer locally that was building a bunch of websites for early adopter companies and he needed somebody to host those sites for him. And, um, and I said, well, what we could use this thing, Linux. And, uh, and I think that would be a, the best environment with Apache to, to host these websites. And he's like, yeah, but can we do that? You know, that's, that sounds good, but can we do it on a Mac? And, uh, and I said, well, I don't know about that, but let me do some research. 
So come to come long, long story short, I find this project called MK Linux that was out of Apple. And it was a research project where the Apple was trying to figure, learn, do, do early work around the mock kernel, which end up, en, ends up being sort of foundational technology for Mac OS X. And so they had ported Linux onto the mock kernel and, and it wasn't, it was just research. That's all it was. And they'd put it out in open source. So I found this thing and I said, okay, well, I guess we can run Linux on the Mac. It's a little behind the, you know, the Linux kernel version's a little dated, but, but I think we can make this work. So next thing you know, we, we have Linux running on this beige Mac in the closet of this web hosting or this web design company. And, uh, we've got the first few websites running on Apache connected to the internet. So that guy that that um, was the web designer, he started telling people at Apple, and I don't know how he knew people at Apple, uh, but he started saying, "Hey, I'm doing this thing. I'm putting, I'm putting, uh, I'm hosting these websites on a Mac running Linux," which at the time was a big deal because you know Apple Mac OS X wasn't out yet. Steve had just barely come back to Apple, um, and the the classic Mac OS was not really an internet ready operating system. It was not really made for the internet. But Windows NT was out there and, you know, very, very built for networking. And then, of course, Linux and open source was starting to kind of have a community. So he starts bragging to Apple. Next thing you know, Apple's telling us, hey, this is so great. You guys should build a company around making a commercial version of the, you know, commercial meaning supported by a company, you know, burn the disks, put it in a software catalog. You know, you'll, you'll sell thousands of copies of this, right? They had convinced us that we were going to sell thousands and thousands of copies of it, um, which maybe over the lifespan of the company ended up being the case, but certainly not not right out of the gate. So we did it. You know, Apple's telling you to do something, you do it. And uh, so we started a company. We made a co- commercial version of Linux for the Mac uh, called Yellow Dog. And um, what what happened w- over the next few years was that we would get two types of customers, people that were kind of hobbyist tinkerers that had a Mac and wanted to play with Linux. But then lo and behold, we also had all of these customers that were or all, all of these people that were buying the software and they had um, email addresses that were clearly representing like government agencies or the military, the U.S. military. And it was like, huh, what is going on here? And, and what we, we came to kind of learn was that at that period of time, the power PC processor that was inside of Macs coupled with Linux was sort of this perfect solution for trying to run a lot of scientific algorithms as fast as humanly possible. That was what a lot of these national labs or government agencies needed to do with computing. It was way less expensive than buying a Cray supercomputer to buy a bunch of Macs, load Linux up and run the algorithms. So what that led to was next thing you know, um, we are putting Linux onto over 200 Apple X serves. Apple used to have a, a 1U rack mount product. And there's over 200 of these that Lockheed Martin, which is a defense contractor, um, is put, putting into a deployment on uh, all of every submarine in the U.S. Navy fleet for the purpose of doing sort of running these sonar algorithms, right? So on these boats, you they acquire all this sonar data. They need to be able to process it very, very fast. And, and all of that stuff, the sonar piece, that was class, you know presumably classified. I don't know. But we didn't touch any of that. What we were doing was we were creating the, the grid computer because the, on every boat, there was 12 of these XSERVs running our version of Linux. And then we had to build software that would stitch all of those computers together so that if one of them um, had a problem, it, it wouldn't affect the rest of the cluster. So there was a lot of technical challenges involved. And a lot of the code that I wrote was was related to the fact that, you know, Apple doesn't sell a Mac to with the idea that another operating system is going to live on that computer. Certainly not as the primary and certainly not as the only operating system. Um, so there was a lot we had to do to kind of make it a manage, a maintainable solution on these boats where they're out at sea for a long period of time and, you know, they need to be able to essentially work, you know, no matter what. That's super interesting. So I have a couple of questions there, right? The first one is, so presumably this is before, you know, there's Facebook ads and probably the very early days of like Google ads, if that was even a thing. So you start doing this, right? How do you get the word out so that suddenly, you know, there's government agencies that know about what you're doing and start purchasing stuff? 
Yeah. You know, it's, it was just simpler days. I feel like sometimes because, um, there was just less out there. So what we did, I mean, it, we, we did some publicity. So whenever we would have a, a brand new release, we would always try to get it on Slashdot. Sometimes we succeeded and our servers were overwhelmed. Sometimes we didn't. But then there was a, you know, a, a, a whole range of other kind of Linux oriented websites, um, like Linux Weekly News or Mac oriented websites at the time, things like Mac Central, um, that would usually pick up our press releases. These days, if you start a company and you send a press release to one of these online sites, like it's just going to go to DevNull <laughs> yeah. almost, almost certainly. So it was just different days where, you know, I think there was just less content. And so these sites were just more willing to put your stuff up there. And so my guess is what happened was that these researchers inside of these organizations, they went to these websites, they were following what was happening in the world of Linux. And, and, uh, and then it, they just became aware of, of the fact that our solution existed. So um, it certainly took a, a long period of time and, uh, but it was, I think, aided definitely by the fact that the, the, the internet was not as populated as it is today. Yeah. I mean, I suppose right now, if, yeah, it's, it's like what you said, the amount of press releases and stuff people get it would have to be something really exceptional and you'd have to get your timing so spot on that they actually read it in the first place to even, yes. even get that kind of promotion. Okay. So, so what happened to that company? Did, did it fold? Did you guys sell it? Yeah, so it, it it went on for a while, and um, I at one point uh, decided I needed to. I didn't. I wasn't going to be. You know, I started it, co-founded it when I was in high school. That that didn't mean I was going. It, for me, it wasn't really an option to not go to college, not go to university. So I had intended to still do that for uh, all of my four years at at university. I continued to do work for that company. And so I almost had kind of a full-time job and a kind of full-time schooling. So when I graduated uh, in 2004, um, I just decided I was ready for a change. So the company was still going on. It was by that period of time, what was interesting was on the one hand, Apple, I, I don't remember if Apple had started to transition away from uh, for PowerPC. I think that was still a few years away, but some other interesting developments had happened, which was that the PlayStation 3 um, had been released and it had like a super and even more awesome version of the PowerPC chip. So lo and behold, some of our customers were actually building these clustered computers running Linux on PlayStations, yeah, which was wild. Um, so, so the company continued, but then when I graduated, I decided, you know, I had kind of done my tenure and I wanted to, I wanted to quite frankly do some things that were not quite in the code as much. The company continued and um, and then I don't remember the exact year, but uh, it ended up being acquired by um, a firm out of Japan um, that was focused on a lot of the same kind of um, problem space of this kind of high-performance computing. And, and in high-performance computing, it's both about the, the, the kind of, you know, clusters of hardware that you can assemble, but it's also about like, optimizing the compiler tool chain, um, you know, having some coprocessors that you can write certain specialized code that accelerate against. So like, I don't know if you remember from the Intel world, there was like SIMD for a while or the, the, um, which was one of the micro or the, the, the coprocessors that was good at, at like just only a very certain type of math. And then Apple processors had this thing called Altivec, which was good at floating point operations. And so this company out of Japan had really specialized in a lot of, or they were trying to specialize in, in kind of bringing all of that together. Um, and, and so in a way they went deeper than we did. We really never got too deep into modifying the compilers and some of that crazy stuff. All right. So you guys got acquired and then I, and then after that, I assume that's when you went to work at Apple, right? Yeah. So that, so after, um, so after university, that's when I, so I, I left the company. I mean, I was still the co-founder. I still consulted with them a little bit from time to time, but I decided, man, I, I want to just, I want to do something that's non-technical for a little while, but I really appreciate, you know, I got to know Apple from our days really being kind of partnered with them, um, on this, on this Linux project. And so, um, I had a friend that was willing to open a door for me and, and try to get me an interview on the, the Mac OS 10 team. 
Um, but that was a software engineering role. And so I, and I just wasn't sure I wanted to, I'm technical, but at that point in my career, which was the earliest possible days, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go and be a full-time engineer, um, or for full-time coder, because I'd also, you know, had that kind of entrepreneurial spirit. And so I went to business school, um, for business. I had a business degree. Um, I, did some coursework in computer science and nearly had a minor degree, but I just, but I was all self-taught in that. So it just wasn't, I, I was just getting pulled in this other direction. So I, I said no to my friend that um, was going to give me the interview, you know, try to get me an interview on the software side. And instead I was like, well, what are the non-technical, what are the non-engineering roles at Apple? And um, there's not very many, but they had just uh, in 2001, Open the first Apple retail stores. And so I, you know, I really, I literally started out just as a part time person in an Apple retail store. But what that led to, which is, which is, you know, very modest and, but it was, I could say I was working for Apple, which I liked to see what it was like. Um, but what that turned into is next thing you know, I'm in a corporate job with a home office that they furnished and, um, it's still part of that division of the company. Uh, you know, I'm working for, a leader who worked directly for Ron Johnson, the senior vice president of retail at the time. And, um, and it was great. And I was there for nearly four years during a period where, you know, the stores had, had gone from just a few of them to, you know, the first hundred to now the iPhone has been announced. And that's like this huge event where at the time we talked about, you know, in a way, Steve's vision for the stores was that they were kind of built to roll out a new product like iPhone. And it was sort of the first product that Apple had brought to market that was sort of built in the era where these Apple retail stores where you could go and learn everything. You didn't have to go to a, a, a cell phone carrier store to learn about the phone. You could go into an Apple store and get a great experience. So it was a you know great, great time. Um, but of course, all good things have to come to an end. So the iPhone launch is in like, what, 2007, I think? Yep. And you were there like during that time. And then, uh, then after that, I'm not sure the exact time frame, but like shortly after a year, two years, something like that, you then leave to co-found uh, or to found a company and then co-found a second company. In, in your own words, like how did that come about and what was it like working there? So one of the things about what, what I guess surprised me a little bit was that, and maybe I should, in retrospect, I shouldn't have been surprised, is that, you know, Apple, as much as, Everything they do is about the products. In a, in a, in a, in a way, the products are, are, are a reflection of something that runs deeper in the company. There's this deeper ethos, uh, around, you know, innovation and, uh, and, and sort of, you know, the set of kind of core principles, uh, behind what they want to do around things like user experience and, you know, nowadays they focus a lot on things like privacy and the environment and the impact they can have on the environment, for example. And so what I was sort of surprised by there was that even in something like retail, which in any other company might have felt, felt like just a kind of a bolt on division that was not like you weren't really an Apple, you know, you weren't really an employee or this kind of different lesser employee. It's like, that's not how Apple treated retail. Retail was, um, in my view, you know, an extension of the company. And, and so what that meant was that even down to things like store design, each store, some of the elements that were, were, were featured either, whether it's the kind of stone that they used for the flooring or the, you know, the, the certain kind of ventilation system that was running through all of those decisions were made. Like I imagine some of the product decisions were being made. And I, and I say that and kind of, I imagine because I've, I, 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 at, at that period of time, um, I heard all these stories, uh, about, you know, Steve Jobs, um, you know, personally approving, you know, this little feature in this one location, not prominent look, you know, it's like, why is the CEO of the company has, have his hands on these m- minuscule details? But, but if you think about what Apple is, I mean, they do care about the details. And so that can't just, if that's what you believe in, it can't just be about the details of the phone or the headphones or the Mac or the, the software. It's got to be the details of sort of everything you do. 
your product packaging, your, you know, they, there was a lot of emphasis around like the t-shirt design of the people in the store. You know, some of those early t-shirts I think were approved by Steve. I mean, it's just wild. Um, so I came to appreciate the fact that Apple is more than just the products. It, 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 the, the ethos of Apple runs deep, even into parts of the company that you wouldn't necessarily think, think it, it does. And then the other thing is what I, the number one thing I got out of my experience there was, um, thinking is learn, learning really how Apple hires people. And, um, when I went to found and co-found those next two companies that you alluded to, that was an essential set of skills where I, my whole thought process about how to pick people, um, was totally different, um, after working for Apple. Okay. So moving on to those other companies then, right? So when you left Apple, you started a company that essentially, I read it from your LinkedIn, but essentially to me, it speaks to be is a development agency. Would that be correct? Yeah. It was one of the first development agencies that was focused solely and uniquely on building iPhone apps for companies. Nowadays, there's got to be hundreds of thousands of those. Definitely. Um, But in 2000, I left Apple um, right after the SDK was announced. I was actually in an internal meeting in Cupertino where I think at the time it was Greg Joswick, who's now the senior vice president of marketing, was telling our group of retail leaders that, hey, there's going to be this SDK. And, um, it's going to be a big deal for taking the iPhone to the next level. And, you know, with my experience running, uh, or, 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 uh, my experience with software and the engineering work I had done before, I'm just like, this thing's going to be, this thing's going to be bonkers. And not just that, it was my own ex- personal experience using devices like the Blackberry, where while the Blackberry was internet connected and you could get email, you always wanted, I, I had this strong burning desire for it to do more. I wanted it that I wanted to have apps on it. And I, and, and so I just knew, I just knew innately knew that it was going to be a big deal. And, um, the early folks in 2000, you know, in that time frame, like early 2008, that were also excited about the coming SDK. Um, most of them were doing things like building some of the first 100 apps on the store that were like a game or a utility or something like that. And so I kind of skipped all that and said, you know, I think there's going to be um, companies or individuals that are going to want to build an app and they're not going to have the technical capability to do so. Because you've got to remember at this period of time, the iPhone OS SDK required that you knew something called Objective C. And, you know, the only people that knew Objective C were basically Mac programmers and how many of those were out there. So I just had a sense of like, there's going to be a need for this. And sure enough, there was um, over the history of that company, that agency, you know, we ended up um, employing, well, before we got acquired, we ended up having like more than 50 people on staff, um, designers, developers, QA people, um, once we got acquired by WPP, um, you know, the, and, and it still exists. It's still called, it's wonder called Wonderman Thompson apps. And, um, I don't know exactly what their headcount is now, but, you know, certainly there's gotta be more than a hundred people working on not just now iPhone apps, but Android and Roku boxes and just, you know, basically any of these experiences on any of these platforms. Um, so at the time it to, to me seemed obvious and now it seems obvious, but, there, there wasn't a lot of people that were focused on the consulting piece, the agency piece in those first days. So, so to that point, then two questions, right? One, how hard was it to find and hire developers like when it had just launched? Because I suppose that's kind of hard to like vet. How good are you at something that's only just come out? And then secondly, how hard was it to get clients on board where you're trying to tell, cause you had big name clients, right? So how hard was it to get people on board trying to tell them like this is the next thing you guys are going to want to app before they might even realize that they actually wanted an app? Yeah. So on the talent piece, the first two people that I hired, one of them was a Mac developer. So he had the, the skills. The other one was a Java developer who had worked in kind of enterprise Java software um, who had been tinkering with the SDK on it on his own time and had made the decision that he wanted to quit his Java day job and do this full time. So his skills weren't as um, sharp as the Mac guy kind of in terms of the acute technology objective C and the Apple frameworks, but he had been a 
senior enterprise software developer for many years. And so he had the fundamentals of, you know, writing software. So those two guys, and then, and then the other thing is that on that first project that we had, which was for a company called Brightkite, which was a startup out of Denver, they were part of the first class of tech stars, one of the tech um, accelerators. And what it was, is it was a location-based social network. So you're probably familiar with something like Foursquare. It, It was basically like that ahead of its time. And I think the first version we built, the iPhone didn't even yet have GPS or, or maybe it didn't, maybe it had GPS, but it was on edge networking. So there, there was something that was really tricky in that first year. And then the second year, it got way better, um, in terms of the capability on the phone. So, but on that project, I was in the code as well, because what I figured in, in, in the, and there was two reasons for that. Number one was that, you know, we needed more hands on the problem because they had tight deadlines and they were pushing us hard. But the second reason and the more important reason was that I knew that these weren't these first two people that I hired weren't going to be the last people that I hired. So to truly understand how to source good people, and especially if I was going to end up having to hire more people that were like Kendall, who was the Java developer, where it was going to be a skill transfer situation, I wanted to, I had had no experience with Objective-C my my experience with programming in Linux was you know C and maybe a little bit of C plus plus in there, but it was there was none of this Objective C which looked like a foreign language to me, even though it's built on a, you know kind of a superset of C and it just looks di- it just looked different and so I was like you know if if I get into the code and try to make some contributions around the edges like fix some bugs or you know do little things um, and oh by the way I'm learning as I go then I'm going to understand kind of acutely how hard it is for somebody that has technical skills but doesn't know this specific set of technologies to ramp up. And what I learned from that was it takes about three months, or at least in those days, it took about three months for me to feel really comfortable with, you know, the frameworks and the kind of weirdness of Objective-C. And so that was very powerful because then I could go and hire somebody that was a very senior or maybe senior is the wrong word, but a seasoned software engineer or even a junior software engineer and that had some experience and know that, hey, in about three months, they're going to be able to con- contribute to a project in, you know, a meaningful way and not just, you know, fix very simple issues. I was going to say you're a brave man for tackling Objective-C because when, when I started doing this, it was Android or iOS and I took one look, one look at Objective-C and I was like, no, I'm going to do Android. <laughs> like I, I can yeah. get Java, there's actual words there. So yeah, brave man. Um, so then so then you've got people and like kudos to you for taking people on because I feel like that's a rare thing now where people won't take someone on unless they're very experienced. And so taking someone on who's got, you know, loads of experience, but not in the thing that you're hiring for is a really cool thing um but i was going to say so the second part of that question was going to be how did you then get clients being one of the first development agencies and the iphone is only just you know recently launched i mean to be clear the first two years of the company so from like 2008 2008 was okay we had bright kite and one other kind of early adopter 2009 was kind of a uh you know mo- half the year was kind of a challenge we were still doing some work for the first couple customers but really what the turning point was is that, um, just to be clear, those first projects, they were not like, they were lucrative, but they weren't like wildly lucrative. So I was reinvesting basically every dollar into the company, you know, for a long time, I wasn't taking pay, you know, um, or taking like a limited salary. And so um, the turning point was really that I think in 2009, um, me and that those first three of us, we went to WWDC, um, Apple's developer conference. And, and I, I think if I recall, like the, I think the company couldn't afford to pay for the whole ticket. I think we were, we paid for the, we either paid for the flight or we paid for the hotel, but not both. I forget which. And then we, we paid for like half the ticket, which was, you know, like, so because that was, it was, it was all expensive, but. Doing that was enough for those first two guys to say, well, okay, we'll pay the rest of the way and we want to go. So we end up at WWDC and, uh, you know, I'm meeting with various people and I'm going to sessions that are interesting to me. They're doing the same. And I get this text message from 
from the other the guy that had been in the Mac world for a long time. I get this text message and he says, "Hey Dan, I think um I think there's somebody that you might want to meet." And um I've got his business card. Um when when can we meet? You know, when can we connect to exchange this information? So I find Dave like I think in the the lunchroom of WWDC and he hands me this business card. He introduces me. So by his version of the story, he introduced me to this person right then. My re- recollection was that he just handed me the business card. But anyway, it was this business card uh, for this gentleman named Robert, and the logo of the business card was the NBA, National Basketball Association, digital team, and vice president of uh, technology or something like that. And I was like, okay, this is somebody I'm going to want to have coffee with. So I end up uh, meeting with this guy, Robert, and uh, we hit it off immediately, and uh, he had been on a... They had, his team had done an early iPhone app for the prior season for the playoffs, but there was all these new things, all these product requirements that were coming down for the next season. And he's like, I don't know how we're going to be able to do this in house with our one, you know, with our three person team. And so he was sort of on a mission to find a development partner. So we hit it off. Uh, but what he said was, and I'll never forget it was, um, it's a little con- convoluted, but but the the party that's responsible in the United States for building the NBA apps um, is one of our kind of TV broadcasters. And so he was in this group called NBA Digital, but they were part of a larger broadcasting company that's now part of Warner Media. And so what he was saying to me, what he said to me in that first meeting is, you know, this fall, I'm going to have a lot of work to do to get our first, ver- you know, real version of of the iPhone app out to market. But, you know, we don't know each other. I don't know if you guys are any good. You know, we've, we've had a good meeting here. But so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give your information to one of my colleagues who um, this summer is trying to launch an iPhone app that Apple has said they will promote around one of the four major golf tournaments that happens every year um, as part of the PGA. And, uh, and so I got hooked up with that person. And then that person you know, we're, I'm doing a bid and it's like tight timelines and it's only for a three day event. So if something breaks, like we don't have any time to get back through app review. And so it's like, there was so much risk associated with this project, but I knew that if we did a good job, then it would lead to the basketball work. So lo and behold, we, we did a good job. Um, we, we built this, we built that PGA app in such a way that we had a lot of flexibility on the server side to config settings and do some things to kind of give ourselves some agility in case there was unforeseen data or, you know, something wonky going on. Um, which ended up being very, very important because it avoided the kind of major, you know, breaking issues that we had to get addressed really rapidly. So then we did a good job. Three day tournament went off pretty well. And, um, and so then it was time to talk about basketball. So we ended up being, um, the development partner for iPhone MBA, the official MBA app for iPhone. That was the first year, but that ended up being, you know, one of our big customers for many, many years. And I, uh, up until last season, I think the company now part of WPP was even still managing that portfolio. So it's been many, many years. Now, of course, when you do work for a brand as prominent as the NBA, that opens other doors. And so your question about how do we get the clients, I think the the follow-on clients had two vectors. Number one is that sports technology is very, very hard because of the real-time nature and you're dealing with TV scale audiences. So, um, once we had our, once we, it became kind of known that we had done a good job for the golf and NBA, then the doors were opening kind of across sports. And part of how that was happening was that Apple's people on the inside that are the relationship managers with these big customers or the, I'm sorry, these big brands, they usually organize by category. So app store category. So if you are the person that's managing the relationship with the NBA, you're also managing the relationship with NHL, MLB, Tour de France, you know, and just keep on going. And so, um, at least in the United States, they do, they do have some of those same roles in Europe where they, they organize it that way, but for brands that are based in Europe and, and presumably also in Asia. So the person I was dealing with 
in the United States a lot was the U.S. person kind of covering sports. And so that was opening tons of doors in sports. But then what was also happening was that, you know, Apple was just generally becoming aware that, you know, our company and like one or two others that were early in that consulting space um, were doing some pretty high profile work that was of high quality. And so we just started getting referred a lot by Apple. You know, Apple doesn't have official partnership programs very often. Um, they don't really have like a list of, you know, th- people on their website that you should contact unless it's something very specific. But in this case, there was kind of this informal internal list of about these are, these are, you know, some of the top three app developers in the world. If you are a big brand and you need help. And so that created for, for sure a, a pipeline for us that. Um, without it, I think it would, would, would have been a much more challenging period for us to get the company off the ground. Yeah, I gotcha. That's pretty awesome. Cause yeah, I, I guess being so early days in and then being good at what you do definitely seems like it paid dividends. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome story. So at the same time as that, right. Or at some point while you're still at this development agency, you are now co-founding a third company which deals with push notifications. Did you get on board with that because of the experiences that you were having through your development agency or how did that come about? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, and by the way, that first golf project, um, part of the, the deal was that we were told is that, you know, Apple basically said, Hey, we want, they had just announced iPhone OS three that had two key innovations. One was the first rollout of in-app purchase. So that was a big deal because at the time we just had free apps or paid downloads so in-app purchase was going to open up presumably this whole additional vector to monetize and then push notification. And the use case for push notification, I remember them demoing. I was actually at the event in the room, um, which was great. It's very exciting. And they used AOL Instant Messenger as the use case, right? You don't want to have to be in the app all the time to see if you've got a new message, right? And so it's like this push thing is pretty cool. But that golf project, which was that summer, um, Apple had, had sort of, I guess, um, suggested that, you know, we, we, we really want to feature this app when it's, when the tournament's going on, but we'd really like you to use push notifications because this app is a great candidate for push notifications. Um, which it was. I mean, getting a golf, uh, getting alerted when your favorite player um, gets an eagle is a pretty great use case if you're a fan of golf. So here I had just basically won the deal to build this app. And now Apple's, you know, basically saying, wait, we really want you to use push notifications. And now the, my customer is basically like, well, how do we do push notification? How do we do this? And I also realized basketball was going to have the same problem as well. How are they going to do push notification? Because push is great for sports. I mean, these days, Somewhat, it gets abused um, and is a little bit maybe more marketing oriented um, than in the early days. In the early days, it was like you got a push notification when when you wanted it. When like every push notification you got was valuable in some way because you opted into it. So we built, we co-founded Push.io basically to serve the need of golf and basketball to start. And built, we built this engine that was both blazing fast because you remember that in sports, it's these TV scale audiences. So you have to be able to deliver these messages really fast. But then the other thing is that it wasn't broadcast. So, you know, you have favorite teams, favorite players, favorite in, in sports. It's very personal. So there wasn't not really a concept of like broadcast. I'm going to send one push notification to everybody in the system. Eventually we had that and, and that opened up use cases where we were powering some of the big um, um, kind of news organizations so they could send out breaking news. But the, in the first version of the product, it was really about personalized push down to what you want to know about your favorite blank. And so we built this blazing fast personalization engine for push. First two customers were golf and basketball. And then that led to same story, other sports leagues, and then later other kind of news broadcasters um, and folks that really cared about, especially speed. Yeah. I mean, all the stuff that you've done so far is super interesting. And I know the company that you're working on now is super interesting. The, right now you're working or you founded a company called NAMI ML. Have I, am I saying that right? Yep. You got it. Okay. And from what I can gather, it's based around um, subscriptions, in-app subscriptions, but like in your own words, can you tell us how did this come about and what does it do? So 
the push company, we sold the Oracle. Um, I ended up inside the Oracle marketing cloud for, uh, for a number of years. And we saw that, that, that how push notification was kind of being used, not just for these things that everybody wanted, but starting to be used for these use cases of trying to fight churn or trying to like, you know, kind of annoy people in service of getting them back into your app. And, and so we just, we had a great experience. It was great working there. Um, we learned a lot, but we weren't sure we wanted to, we wanted to be part of the solution to a lot of messaging, you know, too many emails, too many push notifications. And part of why those things exist is because there's been such an emphasis on growing these audiences, these app audiences to very large numbers. But then guess what? Then people hadn't figured out how to monetize. And so you get this mishmash of, ads in the app that are junky or you um, um, or they're selling your data on the back end and making money on your data or they're trying to do in-app purchases but that's not recurring so it's hard for the brand to kind of reinvest in in the application so you know a number of years ago Apple and Google both started to encourage developers to look at the subscription model what we had identified is that it's got some similar problems that that the push notification space had, which was, you know, it's easy to send one push notification, right? That's not the hard part. The hard part is doing it at volume, at scale, doing personalization, you know, some of the, doing the reporting and analytics so that, you know, our people actually care about these notifications. And so similarly in the subscription kind of landscape is, is, is that was just getting rolled out by Apple and Google. What we realized is that Hey, you know, just selling one subscription isn't particularly hard, but when you have to manage this entire database of subscribers that are in different states, every subscriber is in a different state. Some people are in a free trial. Some people are renewing. They've renewed once. Some people have renewed four times. Some people have canceled. Some people are in grace period because their credit card um, is failing to renew uh, charge, but they don't want to leave the subscription necessarily. They just need to fix their credit card information. So there's just all this complexity around. Um, managing all of this state and not just doing it for for one ecosystem, the App Store, doing it for Google Play, doing it on Roku, doing it wherever your customers are and where your experience, where you want your experience to be, doing it on the web. And so we saw is that you know step one was let's just make it way easier for uh, developers to adopt subscriptions because our thing is is if developers adopt subscriptions. Hopefully that creates a more recurring revenue stream so they can keep doing what they love, which is making their apps, right? But not having to fight with all this kind of underlying technology um, or specifically the platform and or the platform specific differences that you have to care about um, when you're when you're selling subscriptions. So what we're trying to do fundamentally at the at the foundation is just provide an SDK that drops in with a couple of lines of code. You can raise a paywall that you've designed inside of our online control center. So you don't even have to do any UI code if you want. I mean, you literally like three line in, in, invoke the SDK and raise a paywall and you can start selling subscriptions. So it's really just that easy and you can sell subscriptions wherever you need to, be it, you know, the main, the main app stores, you know, um, and, and other platforms. And so then our thing is then then you can focus on what you care about, which is working on your, your core app experience. So I think that enough, that, that, that alone is enough to kind of be a compelling solution in the market because subscriptions is very challenging. You have to do, do a lot of like hand. Well, first of all, it's also not just a client side problem. It's a client side and a server side problem. So if you want to focus on building your client side app, and you don't want to have to run another server, I mean, then that immediately creates a challenge where we see actually a lot of people that, you know, when before they knew we existed, they say, well, then I just was going to do standard in-app purchase because I didn't want to have to do the back-end server. But that, so that enough is, I think, a big problem. But then going farther, um, what we see is that what happened in the push notification space is that initially what was valued was the technical plumbing to deliver push notifications. But over time, what happened was that uh, as, as, as it started getting adopted in larger and larger organizations, there was other people involved. So the marketing person wanted to be involved to make sure the messaging copy, you know, was appropriate. 
And they didn't want to have to go back to the developer and say, hey, can you modify the message with this text? They just wanted to go in and be able to modify the message. So similarly, it turns out that in a lot of these uh, applications, the the subscription marketing that happens kind of inside of the paywall, if you will, most of that is hard-coded out there. Most developers are just building that screen once and they never change it. And that's okay, but and even if you don't have a marketing department where there's somebody that you want to be able to make all those changes so you don't have to, even if you're just an indie developer, the thing is, is that Think of it as another marketing touch point that just like your storefront, your storefront, you don't update once and then never change it, right? You're swapping out screenshots, you're tweaking the title, you're changing the icon. It's constantly iterating to try to move the needle. And so we wanted to make the paywall a marketing asset where um, it could be controlled remotely. It could be super flexible so that you could make changes very rapidly experiment, see what's working, what's not working. Um, and, and, and hopefully like it really accelerate your subscription revenue versus like get it out the door. And then, you know, it kind of stagnates because you don't know how to kind of take it, move it along, if that makes sense. So what we're really trying to do is build the technical plumbing, but then this kind of, I, I don't want to call it exactly a marketing layer. It's kind of a experience layer um, so that you can not just start selling subscriptions, but really, um, you know, grow, iterate, optimize, and, and ultimately sort of automate a lot of these workflows that are, that need to be personalized to each and every subscriber. That totally makes sense. Like I have apps that do subscription and, and to your point, like a long time ago, I used to play with tweaking it and send a push notification that switches a feature flag inside the app so that it will change the price for somebody. And like all of that stuff is great, but all of that stuff is also one time I figured out a price that kind of works and then it's done. Like, and, yep. and this net, yeah. So that, that totally makes sense as a solution that people will use. So you've, you've founded and co-founded four different businesses, right? Three of them are in the app development space and almost everybody listening to this right now is in the app development space. And a lot of things that I, for like, from my personal experience, right? Most of the work that I do is for consulting companies, um, or like digital agencies. And a lot of people I've spoke to have had this idea, like, oh, I'll start my own development agency or I'll start my own push notification company right so for somebody who's starting from scratch and they've got this idea that they want to do something like if you were starting today and you weren't who you are because i like i i like for example the the nami ml i'm sure that being who you are helps push that along a little bit further than someone who's starting right so if you if you were starting today from scratch and let's say you're starting a digital agency company like what would your steps be to get that first client i would focus on trying to establish a niche around something that's new. So, you know, if, if, if it's in the world of Android development, let's say, what's a new framework that Google has rolled out recently that not everybody's up to speed on? Or what's a new form factor that might be the next big form factor or, you know, AR tech, you know, whatever. So I would always look even within the meta kind of, ecosystem is try to find those kind of new new things that you can become an early kind of adopter slash expert of and market your expertise around um, as as a gateway to getting the, the first customer too because I always have like we used to talk about you know our, our sales philosophy was sort of this idea of sign a customer you know service the hell out of that customer so that they were just as thrilled as possible and then spread to other customers either inside that same company or um, by word of mouth from from that very delighted customer. And if you kind of just get in this repeatable pattern of sign service spread, then, um, you know, good things happen. Um, but I just feel like if you are just going to be another app development shop that kind of um, knows the same technologies as every other app development shop. I mean, it's just such a busy space now. I guess that's when it just comes into like a bidding war, right? Like whoever's going to be the cheapest because you will do yeah, the same and why thing. Do, or, or you, you know, you've got slicker marketing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have slicker delivery, you know? Um, so I, I think you just have to be careful not to um, try to be all things to all people, try to focus on a niche, especially one that's something new. And by the way, you know, for my last two companies, what I found was that 
we were both adopting new things, app development for iPhone, which was brand new entirely, and push notification, which was brand new. But in both instances, what I found was that there was a particular market segment that adopts new things more quickly than other market segments. And that market segment was sports. So that's another way to think about it too, is sometimes it's about not just the technologies and the focus there, but are, is there a space that is not being um, um, served well or is a new space that's, that, that isn't, is a new industry that nobody's serving yet? So those are some of the kind of things that I would think about r- rather than just saying, Oh, you know, I'm just going to make this, this, this agency because then I can work for myself. It's like, it's, it's really hard work. It's really, really hard work to land customers. And so you've got to find a way to kind of have a differentiated solution and that might be a technology or it might be a industry or it might be um you know something around your talent so i don't know i get i hope those are a couple of ideas that that could help no definitely definitely that's an awesome answer and then final question um where can people find you online where can they find out more about nami ml i hope i'm saying that right and all that good stuff yeah nami ml nami uh, ml.com or or simply nami.ml although the .ml domain is a little finicky so we have the .com too and maybe sometime yeah, so there's a whole ml part of our story that we didn't even talk about which is why it's in our name but um that'll be for another time and then i'm just generally you know wherever i am insta twitter linkedin all these places because i've got a kind of a weird last name burkaw b u r c a w i was able to get all of the Burka handles wherever I want nice. them, um, even on Clubhouse. So if you want to follow me, um, just just uh, look up my last name uh, on whatever platform you're on. Big thanks to today's guest, Dan Burka. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend or fellow developer. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com slash donate. Caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast. If you'd like to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter at LowCarbRob. And if you'd like to connect with like-minded developers and other listeners, you can do so in our Slack community at coffeeencodingpod.com slash Slack. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee Encoding Podcast.